Hi, you are listening to Cool Story with Bree and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. This week, Bridie discovers that historical fiction is actually really good, Britney Spears' devastating memoir, and David Sedaris's God-given right to steal your stories. This is Cool Story. I'm Bree Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabour. So what have you been up to this week, Bree? I have a small thing and a big thing. My small thing is that I have been thinking before I went to bed every single night that I am frustrated with my inability to articulate on the show last week why in particular I did not appreciate Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Killers of the Flower Moon. You were so angry. When we walked out (laughs) of the recording last week, you were so angry with yourself and you're like, I can't believe that I couldn't say exactly what was wrong. I was like, babe, you sounded great. Come on, like, chill. It was all good. But you obviously thought about it all week. So is this like not a correction? Exactly. Like a post note? Yes. Yes. <laughs> this is an addendum. So I obviously couldn't articulate my frustrations adequately. Tore me up. Went and listened to a bunch of other people's and found someone, listened to a bunch of podcasts and read a bunch of articles. And I found someone who managed to put into words what I could not. So I just want to give a quick plug to um, an article in Variety by Owen Gleiberman. In Killers of the Flower Moon, is Leonardo DiCaprio playing a dumb hick or a pitiless sociopath or a model? And it was just reading this. Well, first of all, in a lot of what I listened to and read, so many people gave so many more spoilers than we did. One of my difficulties was trying to explain what I didn't believe about that character and the marriage without giving away the plot. And I always think, I know people are such psychos about spoilers. And especially when it's a movie about something that really happened, I think it's so lame not to like to talk around it or to think of it as spoilers. But we respect the audience, so we weren't doing spoilers because people get really mad, even if you're spoiling something that happened 100 years ago. Yeah. And I just want to say to people, though, that if you are thinking about maybe seeing the film, you should go see it before you listen or read to a lot because so much was ruined. And I think that the film was special if you sat in a bit of unknowing. Anyway. Oh, so you're pro-spoilers. I'm anti. What do you mean? You think that people shouldn't spoil. I think people should spoil everything. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I think I go and listen to a podcast or read criticism once I have already consumed the art. Yeah. And therefore you can only get to a really meaningful level of conversation if you are willing to spoil. But I'm just saying if people want to go see the film, they should go see it before they do all of the huge amount of homework that I did between last week and this week. So I just want to read out this one quote from this really great article in Variety. The film presents him as rock stupid, except for the moments when he's wily and street smart. The film presents him as a money-grubbing varmint, except that he's also a devoted husband who cherishes his family. That's like one tiny clip of what I found unbelievable and, and incongruous about his character. Brie, we are so smart because we had the same issues with this movie, it sounds like, that all these ultra-professional movie critics had. (laughs) We picked it. We picked that he did an absolutely baffling performance. Well, actually. And that the marriage was not written well either. Yeah, but I found that article, and I should say, I found that article via listening to Slate's Culture Gab Fest. And on Slate's Culture Gab Fest, two of the three hosts adored this film and had no issue with the ambiguity in Leonardo DiCaprio's character. They thought that that made it, like, complex. So I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to, like, begin an entire repeat conversation, but I would just like to acknowledge that I didn't do my best last week and I am showing up this week ready to deliver. (laughs) I thought that you did great last week, but it was a very interesting insight into, you, like, your... Your internal commentary <laughs> after you thought that you'd blown that conversation a bit. Walking you to your car and me just being like, <sighs> carrying an esky, carrying my esky. <laughs> and you're just like, can't believe how bad I just did. I'm like, calm down. We, we're great. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you had a fun week. No, I didn't have a fun week, but I had a very different things on my mind than that. I went back to work. So I, I've been on long service leave for my job. And from your real job, from my real job that pays the bills, my real interesting, like, you know, world consuming job. So I've been on long service leave. So I was back this week. So back working in the office, but also on the weekend, my husband had a bit of a family emergency. His family is in North Queensland. So he ended up flying to North Queensland very last minute. And I had to go back to work while also doing all of the kids stuff. 
and it was chaos. It was also very funny. So usually I start work pretty early in the morning. So I do all the pickups and afternoon, evening stuff. And my husband works in the evening. So he does all the morning stuff. We wake up on the first morning. Well, I had to wake the kids up because they had to get up so much earlier because I had to get to work. And so I woke them up and they're like, where's dad? I said, I told you last night and he's with Nonna. And Cormac, the three-year-old's like, but there's nobody to look after us. (laughs) 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 And and I was like, what do you think I'm doing? (laughs) So I made my first lunchbox of the year (laughs) this week. I've managed to avoid it all year. Did it all like, or I am like Sergeant Major though. Like I am way better at hustling them out of the house and, you know, getting things on track. So I dro- I had to take Hamish, my older one, to before school care, which he's never done before because, you know, Matt just drops him off at school time. And we arrive at before school care and he turns and looks to me and goes, my dad would never bring me here. <laughs> on my parenting, what was missing, standards dropping. Before school care, by the way, smells like cinnamon toast. Oh, my God. Like, it is not a horrible place to be. But then I did – so I ended up doing Halloween with them by myself as well and took them trick-or-treating. So the existence of Dad was completely forgotten by this point and I won in the end. And when we got back from trick-or-treating, Hamish told me that I was the best mum ever. (laughs) Because I was letting them eat as many lollies as they like on a Tuesday night after going around dressed like a ninja skeleton. <laughs> I just want to flag as well that last week you talked about going to a disco. I call it a disco. Did you call it a dance? No, disco. Disco, yeah. And that photograph. And how he wanted to dance with you. Yeah, he did. So we, I took him to the school disco. We went in our coolest T-shirt. So I went in my Spice Girls T-shirt. He went in his Venom T-shirt. And when Blank Space came on, I'm sitting by the side. Like, it's actually pretty boring, guys, because it's school disco. <laughs> I'm sitting by the side, side on the floor zoning out. Actually, when I got there, I saw this Gen X dad in the corner who I don't know. And I was like, I'm going to go stand next to him because he won't start a conversation. <laughs> and we can both just scroll our phones next to each other. And I was right. <laughs> <laughs> That's me at the dog park. Yeah. I was like, I'm, not, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't want to have a conversation. Yeah. Please leave me alone. Yeah. There's some like I there's no some of the parents who I really love, but like I didn't see any of them and I didn't wasn't in the mood to make new friends. Anyway, when Blank Space came on by Taylor Swift, um, Hamish came running over to me and said, "Will you dance with me?" And I'm such a bad dancer, and almost no other parents were dancing, but I did it, and we had a lot of fun. He loved it. Oh, I love that story, and I love the photo <laughs> so much. The photo is so cute. I'll put it on the. I'll put it on our Instagram so everyone can see the photo. Yeah, it is so cute. What was your second thing of the week? Well, what I actually did this week, apart from losing sleep over my performance last week, <laughs> was that I finished the final proofread of my pages for my novel. And, like, sent them back via courier. And it's very – I thought, like, people might appreciate hearing this little insight. It's a lot more kind of hard copy and analogue, I think, than at these final stages. Like, I got a printout, a big, fat, multiple-kilo printout of my book with markups in the margins in pencil, which I then had to reply to in red pen. And one thing that was funny that happened, I had to go to Perth for work. And at the Perth airport, ready to fly home to Sydney, I was lining up to board and I had, you know, because it's a four or four and a half hour flight. And I was like, perfect time to finish my manuscript proofreading. Got to maximise every minute when you're Brie <laughs> well, Yeah. There's no kicking back with six gin and tonics on a four and a half hour flight. <laughs> you have work to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... At Perth Airport, the like serious emergency alarm went off and the whole airport had to evacuate. We realised, I would say, within about 10 minutes of being outside that it was nothing to be concerned about, but it was very serious for while we were all trying to figure out how to exit the building. And I just kept looking down at this manuscript in my hands being like, this is five years of work. <laughs> if anyone fucking comes to this, if they're like, leave your possessions behind. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you don't understand. <laughs> Someone with a gun comes and says, drop everything. You'd be like, no. <laughs> or like, instead of using this gigantic ream of paper as like, a bullet shield. I like use my body to shield. <laughs> anyway, that's not even what I wanted to say. And what I wanted to ask you about is that I also finished reading The Fraud by Zadie Smith, which you talked about, I don't know, maybe a month ago when you finished reading it. Yep. 
So I've noticed a recurring theme at the various stages of me editing the manuscript for my own novel that people kept wanting on like gently requesting or suggesting that I like really, really clarify things and like really, really explain things and not leave these sort of gaps and silences or ambiguities anywhere. And until this week that just passed, I had always been like, no, no, I'm not, I, because I love when I'm a reader being treated like an adult. But then I was finishing reading The Fraud and I was so lost quite frequently. And I remembered that thing you said about it, right? Didn't you say that you were like frustrated that you felt and like you'd been debated, dropped in? Yeah. We debated whether I was just dumb or not. Yes, I remember. Which you are not. <laughs> I know. You kept saying, but I've got my suspicions. <laughs> You've got your suspicions that you are stupid or that I think no, you're No, that I'm dumb. No. Okay. No. No, you're not stupid. No, I know. I know. I'm okay. just teasing. Good. I'm just being funny. But then this week, fin- like reading, finishing reading The Fraud, which had parts that I absolutely adored and like sped through. And whole other chunks of it where I really felt lost. Okay, so I'm glad that you had this reaction as well because you had read the a first third. A yeah, third maybe, and yeah. you had said, oh no, like I I get it. And then I thought, oh, maybe I just don't know enough of the historical context or I'm missing stuff. So I'm glad that you had the same feeling because it's really not that often that I'm reading a book and I don't really know what's going on. Like I like ambiguities and I like them, especially when it is like true, like the ambiguities about how someone feels about someone yeah, or like else. Human or, nature. or human nature. Or someone's intentions. Yes. Or, you know, what the actual thing that they did that upset someone was. Like th- that stuff is fine and you having to figure out for yourself. Like actually Killers of the Flower Moon did it quite well. You never see a scene where they actually go in on a plan, to, the plan together. It just slowly becomes apparent who the killer is. Mm. Like they don't they don't actually do a big scene yes. setting explanation. Like That part of it yeah. was good. And yes. it was, it, that was done really well and that's like making you figure out things for yourself. And the joy of feeling like you're being treated like an adult. Yeah, but the fraud I didn't think was that. The fraud was just like too much assumed historical knowledge basically because where I got confused was a lot of it was people talking to each other about something that had happened in the newspaper but not saying what the event was. Is that what you were getting confused around as well? Like, yeah, I also just was very confused by the timeline because... Yeah, I had to keep going back to the beginning of chapters and being like, what year are we in now? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I know from having listened, as you and I both do, to like a billion or just every single interview that Zadie Smith has done, it's written in these very short chapters because that was she was experimenting with trying a new style of writing in this sort of periodical format in line with Ainsworth. That that's how they would file um, in pieces. But the result is that the chapters are in very small pieces. And I got really confused because some of the chapters, it would be like chapters one, two, and three, say, that are actually all the same scene. Yeah. They're just split into chapters. Whereas other chapter jumps, like a chapter jump then from, say, like four to five, jumps decades or at least like a few months and to a different or backwards and like was Dickens alive sometimes and dead sometimes I had to keep like going backward and forward I just I also thought that the chapters were too short like I that that was part of me feeling like I wasn't getting enough information like reading a page and a half I like I think probably similar to you that some of those should have been like one longer chapter rather than starting a new one yes but then there were other times where an entire chapter would be just a half page of a single par that like blew me away and like totally knocked my socks off. So I was like, I don't oh, know. A, well, like I said, at a sentence level, brilliant. Yes. Always brilliant. At a sen- she's always going to have some observation about human nature that's going to blow you away or how people interact with each other or how people treat each other or even how like you feel about yourself, even though she's writing about characters in this instance 200 years ago. So at a sentence level, brilliant. And I enjoyed it overall. But, yes, I was very confused. I did not know what was going on. I just feel like in hindsight it was the worst possible book for me to read while I was doing my own edits. So so did you make any different decisions about – you can't really at this stage, can you? It's all about, like, grammar and word removal. This is the proofreading stage, so it is very much like these are our final sort of comb-throughs for typos. But as part of that, it is still like the person from my publishing house who did that read through four typos they still that person still flagged like oh I'm a bit lost here is this you know say the same person as 
X, Y, Z or whatever. And I had to, I just like, it was really hard, harder than, and also this is my first fiction. So obviously it's a bit different from all of the other books that I've written, but I really struggled to know how much to explain to people because I have been living in this world for four and a half years. Yeah, totally. You too immersed. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Anyway, that's what I did this week. It was quite like bonkers. I've got a bone to pick with you. Oh boy. My friend Gina has her proof of the book, which I've been asking you for since like April if I could read the book. Okay. Well, I don't have a proof of the book. (laughs) You told me you didn't want a spiral bound copy. Yeah, but then I saw that she now I want to read it. Then I saw <laughs> okay. her. So So did you but you said I had to read the spiral bound copy. Yeah, but then I felt bad that you said you didn't want to. No, so, no I said I'd I said I'd do it in the end. <laughs> Don't put it back on me. It's not I've a chore. FOMO. I've got FOMO it's now. It's not a chore. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm excited to read it, but yeah, with spiral bound, you have to like sit at a table yeah. or whatever. You yeah. can't and I re- read a lot lying in bed. Okay, well if you're happy to receive spiral bound, I'll bring it next week. Okay, I'll hold you to it. Yeah. When she, because she actually sent me a photo of it saying great cover because she oh, hadn't yeah, seen yeah. the cover and that's yeah. how I knew. She's like, this is a great cover. And I was like, where the F is mine? <laughs> I'm checking my letterbox every day. <laughs> so you read a good book? I read a great book and a book that is usually not something that I would ever read. It's It's not... Fantasy. I think that it's technically historical fiction, but it is a little bit fantasy because it is historical fiction about the first people to ever, ever, ever be written about, which is like thousands of years before Christ, thousands and thousands of years ago. So there, there is a belief that the first person we can find in literature is Gilgamesh. Have you oh, ever yeah. heard of him, King yeah. Gil- Gilgamesh? Everyone has heard of him except for me. I've never heard of him. It's a great yarn. Well there is a possibility that Gilgamesh isn't the first character in literature. There's a possibility the first character in literature is actually a woman. What? Called Inanna. Have you ever heard of her? No. So Inanna eventually became Aphrodite. But some people have found like first mentions of her and first instances might have happened before Gilgamesh. Okay, rewind. What what actual book is this? So the book is about Inanna and Gilgamesh. And also another, like a slave girl. Oh, no, I think that she's known in the fables as well. So this is so not my thing. I'm not really into ancient history. I, I'm i not really... Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> not really into ancient history. I've always preferred modern. But even with modern history, I don't actually read much historical fiction. Like I usually read stuff set within the last hundred years. And this is set, I guess, you know, as far back as you can set it. It's written by Emily Wilson, Emily H. Wilson, who used to be the editor of Guardian Australia. I met her like nine years ago and is now the editor of New Scientist in the UK. And that was the reason I picked up this book that I usually would never have picked up or read. Like I didn't even read um, Hilary Mantel books. That's how much I don't read historical fiction. And I've never read fantasy because I always find it very confusing. Like where are they going? What land are they in? Why they're like 60 characters I can never follow. <laughs> Look at I your face. I just need to assert that I'm choosing not to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but you're interrupting me with the look on your face of disbelief. <laughs> this is classic me. I'm like, oh, I'm being so subtle yeah. right now. <laughs> um, so this book basically follows Inanna, Gilgamesh, and this other character, you know, on their journeys and fables, and it follows Inanna's descent into the underworld, which is like a well-known story, and the beginning of Gilgamesh's quests, and it is incredible. It's from three different points of view, Gilgamesh, Inanna, and another Nishu, another person who becomes a god, who I can't remember how to say her name, Ninshaba. Like, the names are a bit confusing. But I could follow who everyone was. I knew who all the characters were. When they were traveling around, I understood what was happening. Like it was written so clearly. The stories were so compelling. In the first third of the book, so many things happened that I wasn't expecting really dramatic stuff. I was reading and reading until like 1 a.m. I love that feeling. Yes. And it's funny. What? It's like there it's very, very dry, but there were very, very funny bits in it. And it's it's such a actually amazing thing Emily has pulled off. Because you know when your mates write it or people you know and respect your friends write a book, sometimes you're a bit like, oh, 
do I have to read it? Yeah, like, especially, especially in spiral format. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get it. <laughs> especially people who are journalists who mm. then attempt fiction, which is such a thing and it and a lot of times does not come off. Correct. You know, I can't see a trace of like Emily really in these this novel, which is amazing for That's your debut as well. That's yeah. such a compliment. Like, yeah. I can't see her worldview, her thoughts or her experiences. Like, it's so imaginative and so incredibly researched. The only thing I can see of her is she is a funny, funny, funny woman. And, like, couldn't and not, not write and she, a So she book. couldn't not be a bit funny. But it's funny in a way that's very – it really works in the book and is very believable, doesn't take you out of the story at all. It's just these dry little asides. And she's written from three different perspectives – and made these three different characters so distinct. Wow. Which is another really difficult thing to pull off because when writers write from different perspectives, you know how it still sounds like the same voice, like yeah. they talk in the same way. and If it's not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're completely unique. The story was amazing. It's the first in a trilogy. Trilogy? Trilogy. <laughs> Look, we've got my mispronunciation yeah. of the week Tick. out of the way early. <laughs> Tick. It's a, and which the others aren't published yet. I'm not sure if it's getting published in Australia, but I looked it up. And it's on Booktopia. It's on bo- it's on Booktopia. Um, I think it'll be a little bit expensive, which is fine. It's not. Oh, it's on Booktopia. Oh, for twenty dollars. Okay, bargain. But thank you for looking that up for fact checking. Well, me. I wanted because you haven't said what the title is. It's the title Inanna. is Anana yeah. by Emily H. Wilson, and very funny. She had to go under Emily H. Wilson. Because there's a very famous woman who studies and interprets and has published about Homer. Oh, so that's like, what, yeah. Who's called Emily Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a good person for like our Emily to get mixed up with. So do you now love historical fiction? Are you going to acknowledge that? That it can be really amazing? Every time I read historical fiction, I love it. Yeah. Like yeah. I just have to get to it. Yeah, right. But every time I – but also I, I do read pretty widely. Like I think I am pretty good at picking up books that – are different from the previous book or books that you do. Yeah. So maybe yeah, maybe saying that I don't really read historical fiction isn't fair. And you read that one about those Japanese pride of, the Japanese pride of Yeah, religious. but that was like last hundred years. Oh right. So yeah, like true. I read yeah. within the last hundred years, but not really beyond that. And and certainly not something that can go a bit into fantasy. But the, it was amazing, blown away. And also what a relief. To, well, I guess when you don't love it, you just don't say anything about it. You just pretend you haven't read it. You know, she lives in England. She wouldn't know if I never read it. I loved it. Whereas when I give you my manuscript, if, if you don't I hear don't from hear me. from you, <laughs> the show is cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to come on one week and be like, Bridie just hasn't shown up. I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> or like the week after, I'm like, so Brady, what what did you what did you do this week? Or I'll pull out the card. Well, you don't care what I think, so it's fine. <laughs> you only care what about four or five people think of your book, so you don't need to know what I think. <laughs> no, I'm going to just like sweating already. <laughs> oh, I'm going to. I know it's going to be great. But yeah, Anana by Emily H. Wilson loved it, and then I was sending her photos of it at the beach. Oh. You know, she's in England and stuff. And when I published my books, I loved it when. Friends around the world would send me photos of it in yeah, 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 and in different places. So yeah, loved it. You have sold me on that book. That sounds. I'll bring so it in good. for you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'll buy it. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah buy it. Can um, give Emily some of that. This book should be one so famous, and two, it absolutely should be a television show. Like the story that she has plotted is amazing because she's basing it loosely on myths of the time and what we know about them. But there's tons she's had to fill in and make up, mm. and it's just. Phenomenal work. I don't know how she's done it with, like, such a big job and a family and everything, but she has. How good. Sick. Uh, Well, at the opposite end of the reading spectrum, I have been reading the Britney Spears memoir, The Woman in Me. There is – I don't even know where to begin talking about this, but there there is a separate conversation I want to have about the sort of voice and the tone of the book and then, of course, the actual content, which is – there is so much to pick through. Do you have any specific questions about this before I – I want to talk about voice and tone, I think, first. Do I have any specific questions? What have you seen? What have you heard? Like, what are you wondering about? I Well, I was – I'm wondering about what the specific experience is of reading this book as a woman who came of age in that really toxic time that I'm sure she's writing about and focusing on. And, you know, we remember – her being villain, I'm sure we both remember her being villainized for breaking up with Justin Timberlake. We remember her shaving her head and being incredibly, in inverted commas, crazy, like nuts 
Brittany. And there's been plenty, I think, that we've reflected on as women in our 30s about what the culture was like when we were teenagers that was very terrible and wrong, particularly around body image. And so I've been very curious about what the experience is of like reflect, you know, us living through it and having these certain thoughts or assumptions about her at the time and then reading what the actual story was. And So something I think that she handles very, very well and that I was impressed by, which is sort of the, the biggest thing that I was impressed by, is how she acknowledges this absurd pressure that she was under from the age of like early teens right through to the end of her teens into her early 20s, like almost a decade where she was expected and presumed to be a sexy eternal virgin. And it is so, it would have been so easy for Britney Spears and whoever was the sort of assistant ghostwriter, whatever, to whatever degree that person was involved, it would have been so easy for them to write a memoir in which she was only ever the victim during that time. But to her immense credit, there are specific instances where you can see all the people around her have sort of forced her into this nuts dichotomy, like dual dual forced dichotomy of sexy virgin. And there are times when she owns her sexuality and says, like there's a specific photo shoot that she does when she's in her late teenage years that she was really proud of and loved doing and felt great about that she got vilified for. And she was like, no, that was my idea and I wanted to work with that photographer again. And in particular, surrounding the breakup with Justin Timberlake, who very much you come out of this book fucking hating. (laughs) I remember the rhetoric at the time was that she had cheated on him and then he wrote that album about what a bitch she was and then... And did the video. And did the video. And then, like, shortly thereafter, she got together with Kevin Federline. Is that how you say his name? I'm so out You're of You're asking me how to pronounce something? <laughs> a celebrity name, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, got together with this Kevin F guy and then... And was sort of already going-ish off, quote-unquote, off the rails and it, and it just went from there. What emerges, A, that like a lot of listeners would have already heard about is that she was essentially pressured into getting an abortion for Justin Timberlake's child. What I hadn't heard was that, which she talks about in this book, was that they sort of together decided, although she was obviously not feeling good about the decision, decided that she couldn't, they couldn't afford to go to an actual hospital or facility because there was no way that it wouldn't be leaked. And so she was just lying by herself on the bathroom floor for hours in agony. And when you see at what point in time in her life that event occurs and how vulnerable and at risk she already was for having no meaningful support network and how close in time Justin Timberlake then just broke it off with her in order to strategically release a record in which she was painted as the bad person. It just, I think this is a portrait of like a psychological break almost protracted over time that we all thought we had seen and actually had not been seeing. But to get back to my original point, one thing I had no recollection of that Justin Timberlake did when he spoke publicly about their breakup He accused her of cheating, which she says that he was the one who was cheating all the time and not really her or certainly not anywhere to the same extent. But also also Justin Timberlake told the world that their relationship had been sexual, that they had had sex. And people were outraged that Britney Spears would have sex. Never mind the fact that her and Justin Timberlake had been living together and by this stage she's like well into her late teens, if not early 20s. And to her credit in this book, she says that she was really glad and relieved when Justin Timberlake said that they had had sex together because she had been so frustrated for so long that people just had this completely unfair expectation on her that she would be a virgin forever or at least until she got married. And there is just a really great way in which she does not just play the victim card, which she very well sort of could have, right, because there are so many times over the years that she was so utterly 
wronged. And to her credit, she owns it when she, you know, when she wants to, and then calls out people when they deserve to be. And how absolutely bonkers to reflect on that time and think of it being a news story or in the headlines or people being particularly passionate about the breakdown of a relationship between two people in their late teens or early 20s or even care, even if she did cheat, who cares? Like she's in her, she's like 21. Yeah. And she, it sounds like he did it way more, but you know, they're two essentially kids. Why is the world invested in them? What being together, treating it as such a transgression that they've, you know, that maybe a 21 year old has cheated on another 21 year old or they've broken up and let alone before we even get into all the virginity stuff. What a bizarre time. It may Especially me- when it, it was so demanded of her to be so sexy. Yeah. She was sexualized when she was a teenager from the minute she's on the public stage. And yet there was this demand on her to be a virgin as well. Yeah. And so, in, for example, the Hit Me Baby One More Time clip, which, of course, is like seared into a lot of our I remember memories. where I was when I first saw it. Yeah. It's like, it's so iconic, right? And that's a really good example of when she was still a young teen when that certainly when they began even like recording that song but she was the one who said she wanted them to be like at school and then the school bell to ring and then like she was the one who had she's that smart. idea yeah. yeah she's smart she doesn't say you know then they forced me into this schoolgirl uniform that now looks super problematic do you yeah. know what i mean like she owns it when she wants to and Obviously, it sounds like she owns it and also says, also, by the way, it rocked. Yeah. People might think it's problematic now. I still love it. It sounds like that is part of her, the book. But what I want to talk about, which I haven't heard enough people talking about, and maybe I've just missed, I don't know, the, the podcasts and articles where this is discussed, is like the tone and voice of this book. There is a way in which she is so incredibly naive and childlike both in real life when she was obviously like a teenager and in her 20s and just thrown into this frankly unprecedented level of celebrity in the paparazzi era in particular but the way in which this book is written is also with a kind of naivete I don't want to say stupidity or idiocy but like how she could even with hindsight not be putting certain things together or making certain realizations is quite shocking like really like what like what kind of realization okay so for example in the part where she's talking about her childhood she says that when friends would come over to the house she would like get on top of the coffee table and like sing and dance to try and like get attention and then within a few chapters later says that um actually back when she was just like growing up down south in America, she um, never wanted to be, like she didn't want fame or never wanted to be famous. But then you flip back and she's like, actually she says when she was a girl that she wanted to be a pop star. Like there's a there's a ah. kind of uh, like an unwillingness to, to think about what it means to want to be famous kind of in a kind of naive way or something. And All I can think is that like my, I wonder if you have a bit of a theory about fame because my mini theory about fame is that when people become famous and when that moment really starts to take off where their person and their persona become like sort of split and yet are obviously inextricably connected, it like stunts emotional and intellectual development from that point onwards quite often. And that happened to Britney Spears. She was like auditioning for talent time shows when she was like nine. And it just seems to me that there is a very, very immature, young, naive person, both in the actions described on the page, but also narrating this story. So funny that that's the conclusion you come to, because when you first started talking about her seeming very naive and almost childlike in this book, I was almost going to jump in and be like, yeah, fame arrested development. Right. Which I see in so many, particularly pop stars, I think. I do think that there is arrested development. Another person who is very clever and has a much better support network, but who I also think has a bit of arrested development is Taylor Swift. Yeah, right. She's like a 30, she's 34 next month. Happy birthday, Taylor. That's old. 
for her to still be um, writing. Excuse me, Brie. That's old for her excuse to... me, 31-year-old Brie. <laughs> but that's old for her to still be acting the way she is. Exactly. So she's she's 33, about to be 34, and she's and she's profiting off it as well. So some of it is strategic, I think. Yeah, but like I, But I do think there is a way that she talks about relationships and approaches relationships and speaks that I find is very much like someone in their early to mid-20s and that's when she really, like she was famous for when she was a teen but she really, really took off in her mid-20s. And I think you said stunted and I'm going to say the same thing in different words. I always think arrested development and they're almost stuck emotion, particularly emotionally at that time where they were just becoming famous because from then they're living, unless they've got a great support network, which Taylor does to an extent in her parents, you know, people that she trusts and who knew her before, Beyonce is similar very, very solid relationship with her mother and sister, which I think has helped. And I think there's a clip of Beyonce going around essentially saying that about Britney, being very kind about Britney and saying, I'm just lucky that I had a proper support network. And this is obviously the parents, like the support network is the thing that really let Britney down. But basically you have those people who might stay normal and treating you like a normal person. And then you just enter this complete unreality where there's no friction in your life. You never have to wait in line for anything. Nothing's ever delayed. Nothing's ever closed. Like no restaurant is ever booked out. Like all of that is taken away. And part of growing up and maturing is learning how, and this happens when you're a toddler as well, but it definitely keeps happening in your 20s, learning to deal with disappointment, learning to deal with a little bit of failure, whether that's in personal relationships or professionally but a lot professionally, learning to deal with, especially as you enter your 30s, envy, jealousy, getting the things you want and realising they're not making you happy, life not turning out the way that you thought. It's just not happening on that level for these people who become ultra famous young. And I think that it's very easy to see the effects that that has. And in arrested development or stunted emotional growth, has definitely, I think, happened for Britney. Something that, and that's something I've observed just from watching her Insta, her videos on Instagram and the way she speaks. Mm. And maybe also partly why Kim Kardashian is 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 as successful as what she is because she didn't actually reach ultra fame until her early thirties and didn't start becoming famous until her mid to late twenties and was in. So she was like, you know, quite developed and mm. also another person with a support network. But it is something that I've observed a lot about fame. And with Britney Spears in particular, it's not even that her parents were like a little bit absent. It's that they were fucked. And taking advantage of her. Yes, hugely. There's a scene right where. Exploiting her. Yeah. Yeah. So um, obviously a huge part of the sort of what second half of the book is the conservatorship. And the scene that she relays when her father has managed to basically put the first blocks in place to kind of remove her freedoms He's like arrived at her house. He's he's put the basics in place and he sits her down and he says, I'm Britney Spears now. So fucked. It's disgusting. I'm so sad. And who in the world today does Britney have to trust? Who does she have who she knows loves her, whether she's famous or not? No one. Wants to talk to her or like is interested in her, whether all this is going on. She is absolutely nobody. It's actually extraordinary that she's keeping it together now to the extent that she is. And one of the most heartbreaking scenes for me was like I all I remembered about Kevin Federline was that he seemed like a bit of a loser and a weirdo and that I felt sorry for someone who seemed to me at the time to be as amazing as Britney Spears that like that's the best guy she could get. In this book she talks about how she fell in love with him when they would just like swim in the pool and he would just hold her because she couldn't remember a time in her life when someone and like obviously they were having sex but that's not what she was talking about that someone just held her and made her feel like everything would be okay oh my god and it was so she didn't even have physical proper physical affection as a child or and then to to go from that so And the way she talks in this book about being so in love with Justin and them having had this real like shared crazy beginning in life with the Mickey Mouse Club and how just like besotted and infatuated and adoring she was about Justin. Then the breakup to happen like that and to go from that to just being held by Kevin 
to then having two of Kevin's, two, the two children. She was pregnant within a year of having just given birth to the first one, like two children in very, very short succession. And Kevin just starts icing her out. And she travels with these two tiny children to try and like see him and his security won't let her into like the studio where she's recording. And it's like the number of people who have wronged this woman is just so devastating. And the number of people who made millions and millions of dollars from trapping her is gut-wrenching. Is there anyone who has had a good experience of fame? Oh, Kim Kardashian. But if you watch all her other sisters, it's ruined their lives on the show. But it is such a poisonous thing, isn't it? And also I read this really great quote once that was like, if you have a taste of fame and it doesn't want to make you run in the opposite direction, then there's something wrong with you. And that has been my experience. Like I sometimes get recognised on the street or if I'm out at a bar or something and every single person who has ever come up to me has been 110% lovely. They always say... I don't want to bother you or take up too much of your time. I just want you to know that your book meant X, Y, Z. And I never resent that. I have never resented that. And it's so lovely. But it's frightening and strange as well to no longer feel like you were just a like regular anonymous human being going about your life. And how someone could have even a beginning taste of that and then like want more of that instead of less. Something wrong. I think that's my theory. Right? Don't you think? Yeah. Oh, oh, I also think like the ownership that people feel over famous people. I have a friend who's an actor and is very recognisable. And being out in public with her at times, I think that there people are really stupid or like they just don't think they don't think that that famous person is a real person the way that I see her treated. People touch her. People grab her. People all the time come up to us in the middle of dinner, like in the middle of her eating and interrupt her to say how much they love her. And just like the, like the range of very inappropriate interactions I have witnessed with it. Just, yeah, fame. Yeah. It's bad for you, the famous person, but it also does something weird to normal people as well scrambles and how they behave. Yeah, it scrambles brains. God. Anyway, the final thing I'll say, it's really short. It glosses, like, it's just like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. I'm going to it's listen just... to the audio book because Reese Witherspoon reads it. No, Michelle Williams, isn't it? Oh, Michelle Williams. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Lol. Blonde, blonde chicks in their 40s, they all look the same <laughs> to me. Like, they're all one woman. <laughs> yeah, Michelle Williams, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and so I'm keen to listen to it on audio. Yeah, I think it would do like, what, a couple of hours? It's so short. Yeah. The article that I saw everyone talking about this week maybe goes a little bit to these themes of what's yours and what's not and what you're entitled to retell. Yep. So it's from Slate and it's called The Hot Dogs and the Notebook. It's by someone called Gab Siobhan and the subtitle is um, How David Sedaris Turned Me Into One of His Freaks. (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to put it out there. This article for me does not pass the vibe test. No, absolutely. But you've got to... Tell us what it's about. Summarise it. Okay. So for anyone who's unfamiliar, David Sedaris is not only a very famous author just for writing and publishing books, but he's a fantastic like performer of those books. And a core component of his career is this kind of chicken and egg he's developed where he goes on tour and he's like on tour for such a huge portion of every year, both around the States and internationally. And he goes on tour sort of reading aloud from his books and telling other sort of anecdotes and stories. And while he's on tour, he's gathering more material for the next book. And he is famous for having signing lines that take hours and hours and hours to get to the end of because he like makes an effort to have conversations with people and gets so much material from these conversations with strangers. And this article is somebody who says that they did not realise that that was Sidaris's sort of what shtick, gambit, game, profession, like pattern that he's developed over many, many years, goes along with their friend to a Sidaris show and in the signing line tells this like quite extraordinarily sort of embarrassing, strange story about putting hot dog, frozen hot dogs up their butt. And then David Sedaris uses that story. And then this person gets upset about it. Right? Is that not 
I just, what am I missing here? You're not missing anything. My reaction, I sent that article to a friend of mine and my caption was, have a sook, mate. (laughs) The whole thing is just a sook. And I don't know why Slate published it because he's so obviously just leveraging it and using David Sedaris' name to get a byline. Yeah. And he's doing like a very similar thing to Sedaris except that Sedaris, he just, even, even if he says... I didn't know this was Sedaris's stick. He says he was he only went because a girl he was interested in wanted to go. And he said, I didn't realize that he like takes people, so many of people's stories and retells them. Babe, what were you just watching for two hours? Did you not just watch him on stage? Like he would have told so many stories on stage. And he was telling stories that other people had told him about sticking objects in their butts. Yep. Like he had just been on stage saying that publicly. And you tell him this story. And he didn't say, don't use that. He watched David Sedaris get out his notebook and write it down. Yeah. And didn't say, don't use that. And then publishes in Slate this big sook. Yeah. The big shame in this whole debacle is Slate paying for this piece. Yeah, and exactly. It. And, but I'm sure it got tons of clicks. But it's, it is interesting to think about as a writer and also when you're having friends that are writers what is up for grabs and what isn't. Well, Carolyn mentioned that, how funny it was that she said that Dolly Alderton is like a notorious and clever like thief of other people's yeah. stories. She called her a thief yeah. in a very loving way. Yeah, she's yeah. like, she's a thief. She's like little anecdotes, metaphors, stuff that you say turns up in her work all the time. That's um, writing. That's writing. Exactly. Rick Morden, like any time that you say something funny, Rick will write it down in his notes app. You know, stuff my kid says, stuff I say. And sometimes, like, when we're together, he will read out to me saying, oh, I, I was with so-and-so and they said this. And I know all of that is going into a great novel yes. one day. Like, you're friends with a writer. That's just what's yeah. going to happen. But I did have – I did do something wrong in my last book. It's funny this article came up because I read it just after I had apologised to my sister for a book I published in 2021. <laughs> Because I did the ultimate sibling thing and published a text message fight between us in my book. Her named, like, no one de-identified, like, Righty. an actual fight we had, <laughs> I published in my book and I didn't tell her I was doing it. How bad is that? That's and I think I did wrong there. And do you know what? I knew I was doing wrong because... In that book, I also published a email that my other sister had sent me from overseas when she was very young, I think like 20, 21, and she'd sent me this email overseas and I published part of it in the book and I screenshot it and sent before I even wrote it and sent it to that sister, Alice, and said, do you mind if I use this in my book? Alice says, yeah, of course, babe, no worries, I love it. Did I ask Anna if I could publish our fresh fight in the book? Did I ask Anna if I could publish those messages? No, I did not. Why not? Because I'm a huge bitch older sister. It's like that's just pure. That's not even being a writer. That's just like trying (laughs) to win the fight. That's not being a writer. That's just being a bitch. Yeah, yeah. It's just being an older (laughs) sister. And I, I, and it was so funny because the book came up on the when I was on the phone to her because we talk all the time. It came up somehow, and I was like, babe. That was so wrong of me and I'm sorry. And she wasn't even asking for an apology. <laughs> I apologised to a few people in like multiple years after Eggie came out because I had made very, I think, juvenile assumptions that like if somebody was portrayed really positively and admiringly in my book that they wouldn't mind having like a bit part in it, which as like someone in their early 20s and during that, frankly, like nuts time in my life, seemed to me a safe presumption but then like touring it and in hindsight I was like oh no that's that is my presumption because that's how I feel and I didn't realize how other people might feel diff really differently so I sent some like very very like genuine apology emails did you get responses no from anyone no but I had already by this long 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 before that there were some people who took issue with my book and I had already made myself accountable to them by like phone calls and things. So this was like the people who I just in the back of my head over years had been like, you know what? Like I would do that differently now. So I'm just going to take it upon myself to reach out in case. Yeah. Yeah. There's totally a line, but David Sedaris is absolutely in the right for (laughs) retelling a story that someone in his notorious signing lines had told him after listening to him on stage talking about people telling those stories. Yeah. Can't wait to read your novel and see if little quotes from me come up. 
Mm, probably not. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. I'm not going to find myself in your novel. I know that. That's what's worse is when people get cut because they thought that they would be in your book and, like, are not in there. Or people who are, like, not actually in there and think that they are. And it's like, oh, oh, my God, it's so <laughs> tedious. Like, I'm, yeah, I've seen myself in um, some writers' works a few times and I've never minded. Although my friend <laughs> shared a draft of, like, 20,000 words of a novel with me about a group chat. And I loved it, gave him some feedback, told him what I thought worked, what didn't work. And then like a year later, I mentioned, I said, yeah, it's so funny how um, so-and-so was in that, but I wasn't in that. And he's like, "Um, you absolutely were in it. This entire character is based on you. And I was like, "Uh, I'm not that bossy or annoying. (laughs) (laughs) But so it's good when you don't see yourself because (laughs) I think it was like a cartoon version of me. But yeah. That's funny. Well, what have you got coming up this week? I think I'm just going to recover when Matt comes home and um, spend the weekend ignoring my children. (laughs) I think I've reintroduced myself to them enough this week. And I've got my friend's birthday drinks and a few things like that, but I think very chill. Um, I'll probably spend the weekend listening to Michelle Williams read Britney's book. Mm. I have many social engagements. What are you doing? Just like, You're going to an art show, aren't you? Yes. That I can't come to because uh, of my children. Uh, <laughs> I hate it when they interfere with my life like that. I have to take them to swimming lessons instead. They have to learn a life survival skill instead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing you shoving them in the pool and making a run for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you're not allowed to leave. No, what I do is I sit there watching them thinking... I swear to God, I learned to swim much quicker than this. You guys have been at this a long time and you still seem pretty shit. (laughs) Is this a scam? (laughs) I love that we've just talked about a memoir of someone who has unsupportive parents. (laughs) And you're like, fucking, my kids are trash. (laughs) They're not. They're just bad at swimming. I swear I was better. No, I hug them all the time. No, we can make these jokes because you are a good parent. Um, Am I? Yeah, sure. Let's go with that. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, You are smart and you read very widely, including back in history, and you're a good mum. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Bree. Yeah. Uh, What a way to go out this week. So you're going to an art show. Yeah. And then I have like a dinner thing and then I have lunch thing. I don't know. I just... I feel like I was really... Uh, hot in- girl summer. Hot, yeah. Incoming. Hot yeah. girl summer incoming. Yes. Is there a single other thing to do on this freaking manuscript which you have been finalising all year? Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, the big, huge mail out of all the advanced copies. Yeah, but I mean, you don't have to edit another thing, do you? No, but I'll have to read it that fun. When it comes out in like the actual book format, like not in the kind of spiral bound printout, but in the actual book format, that's my final chance to like eagle eye read it and make sure I haven't fucked up. Okay, great. Yeah. Hmm. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest stories of the week. We record on Gadigal Land, and our producer is Sam Devonport. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also find us on Instagram at Cool Story Brie Bridie, where we love to hear from you. Please leave a rating, please leave a review. Want to hear a cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts.